This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hey there, everybody. Once again, my name is Kaushik, and I am joined here by my trusty co-host, Nathan. We are M4s here at Feinberg, here for another episode of Alert and Oriented. Thank you guys again for listening, and without further ado, we will introduce our two discussants for today's episode. Hey everyone, my name is Brandon Rafidi. Happy to be here on Alert and Oriented today. I am from Chicagoland area, went to Northwestern for undergrad, and now I'm a fourth year med student here in Northwestern, and I will be applying into psychiatry for residency. Hi, I'm Allie. I am from Phoenix, Arizona. I went to undergrad at the University of Arizona. I'm fourth year here at Feinberg, and I'm going into OBGYN. All right, yeah. It's a great September day, so without further ado, let's jump into the case. All right, we have a 25-year-old female presenting with worsening bilateral lower extremity edema and a tremor. So that's your one-liner. What are your initial thoughts? What do you think, Brandon? (laughs) Well, when I hear about lower extremity edema, one of the things that comes to mind is, is this a cardiac etiology that can cause swelling in the legs? But I'm also thinking this is a young patient, about Mm -hmm. 25 years old. So I'd be curious, you know, what this person's past medical history is. I also think about why they'd be retaining fluid. So it could be like a kidney problem Mm -hmm. as well. If you're losing protein some way, you could be retaining fluid. Yeah, I think like the three, the three buckets that I think of for like retaining fluid is cardiac, kidney, as you mentioned, and then like liver related issues can cause that. I'm trying to piece together how the tremors related though. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Do you guys think it's they're connected or different things? I think I need to know more about the tremor because a tremor could also be because you had too much coffee that day mm. or you're anxious. Right. So I think I need to know a little bit more about her history and exam as well. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like we're thinking cardiac, kidney, liver, try to figure out how this tremor fits in, but we want some more history. All right. Asking you shall receive. (laughs) So she has a history of chronic ITP diagnosed about 10 years ago. Uh, She has tremors, uh, feels off balance and clumsy with hand and eye coordination. Her family has noticed changes with her personality. Over the past six months, she's had worsening lower extremity swelling and was told it was due to bad leg veins. The swelling has now progressed to include her abdomen. She thinks she's gained 50 or more pounds from the swelling. So how does this history impact your thinking at this point? I'm thinking there's probably a neurologic component because of the she's off balance, clumsy with hand-eye coordination and the personality changes. So I'm less likely to think that this tremor is like of a benign etiology. I would agree. Also, just just so we're on the same page, can we define ITP? Oh, yeah. I think it's immune thrombocytopenia. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. So I don't remember exactly, but is that an autoimmune disease? It's thought to be. So it's basically severe thrombocytopenia with no other explanation, thought to be antibody mediated, not necessarily one that we can identify. So if she already possibly has some component of autoimmunity and she is of that, she's like the perfect patient demographic being a young woman that I would think about for being at risk for other autoimmune conditions as well. Agreed. And I I think 
I'm not sure about this yet, but when I think about clumsy hand-eye coordination, tremor, and off-balance, I, I think about cerebellar issues. So I wonder if that's related here as well. And then personality, I would think of, like, if we're thinking of parts of the brain, I wouldn't think of cerebellar for personality. So I would think of, like, a different part of the brain, like frontal lobe, or, like, is her personality changes because she's has a psychiatric problem going on? Like, is she depressed? Or is it a neurologic issue? Mm-hmm. It sounds like the way that you guys are framing the problem so far makes a lot of sense to us. Because it sounds like you're attacking it from an organ-based approach, at least where the swell, at least as far as the swelling goes, and then trying to figure out how the tremor could be incorporated there. You know, it sounds like the primary problems that you two have put a name to thus far are the tremor and the lower extremity swelling. So with the information that we have right now, are there any possible diagnoses that as far as starting to formulate a very early differential that you guys have just kind of random in your head right now that you would be willing to put a tiny bit of money on to just put a name to before we give you a little bit more information. Because I feel like this is what's really hard about being, you know, in, in these scenarios, right? Especially as med students is going from framing a problem to translating it to a differential and how to adapt that to what we expect to see on, you know, exam and labs and things like that. So I feel like this is kind of the starting point of how we get broad and then start to kind of, and start to kind of funnel in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I think for me right now, I'm, I'm, when I'm thinking about a diagnosis, I'm still focusing, at least right now, on, on liver-related pathology because I think you know the liver has a role in platelets, so she has chronic low platelets, although it's diagnosed as ITP, but that's something to consider. And then I know with, with liver issues as well, you can have, I think, neuro, neurologic dysfunction as a result of that. I think it's like ammonia develops in severe cases. You would see like asterixis and then just other neurologic Finding. So I'm trying to think of a, a, a diagnosis here. I don't think I can help you out with a specific diagnosis there, but I agree with you. I think 50 pounds is a very impressive amount of swelling to have put on in, sh- in such a short amount of time, six months. And this bad leg veins is interesting to me. So it seems like at some point a doctor has told her that there was some issue with her veins. Does that make sense? 25-year-old? No. For everyone so, who's listening right now, Allie has a very, very confused look on her face. <laughs> I, know I know there's no video, but she, yeah. but she looks very skeptical as far as this patient having bad veins. That's my normal face. <laughs> yeah, like chronic venous insufficiency in a 25-year-old yeah. would be very unusual. Right. So it was just something written off. Okay, know? so she was, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm just stuck on this 50 pounds. That's a massive amount of fluid to be... I don't think venous insufficiency does that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So we go to see the patient. What are some things that you'd be looking for on exam? Is there any jaundice <laughs> in this patient? I would probably test for asterixis. Is that asterixis <laughs> as well? Um, is there like a fluid wave <laughs> for abdominal exam? Yeah. Things like that. Okay. All right. All righty. So a couple of things you just mentioned. Let's see if we got them. So on physical exam for vitals, she is a febrile heart rate, 75 blood pressure, 110 over 75, setting 99% on room air. She doesn't appear to be in any acute distress. Her pupils are reactive, extraocular movements intact on heart exam. There's regular rate and rhythm. 
Lung exam is clear to auscultation bilaterally, normal work of breathing on room air. On abdominal exam, you do appreciate a distended abdomen, positive fluid wave that's non-tender to palpation. And on extremity exam, she's anasarchic with two to three plus pitting edema to all four of her extremities. Additionally, on her neuro exam, she is awake, alert, and oriented. Haha. Speech is fluent, though slightly slowed with flattened intonation and some lingual dysarthria. Mild, intermittent, low frequency, low amplitude tremor of the bilateral hands with posture with no clear dystonic posturing. She has normal tone, no clear bradykinesia, no drift. She's anti-gravity throughout, but formal testing is difficult due to her severely diffuse edema. Sensations intact, no dysmetria. So this is a lot in the physical exam. You guys mentioned a couple of things going in as far as what you were looking out for, some things you wanted to assess for on physical exam. Now, just very briefly before we move on, I promise there are some laps coming, but is there anything preemptively that jumps out to you on this exam and what kinds of things would you be looking for if you wanted to order labs and what would your next steps be? So let's just start with what jumps out to you on this exam. Um, the, the tremor, bilateral tremor stands out to me um, as well as there's no dysmetria. So that one thing I mentioned before with Sarah Beller, that kind of seems to point away from that. And I think it's interesting that there's you know, or worthy to note that there's no focal neurologic signs on exam, as well as her speech being slightly slowed and flattened. I'm assuming that means like mo more monotone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And lingual dysarthria. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you're getting at when you mentioned no focal deficits, you're kind of appreciating yeah. that it's seemed to be very global Yeah, and kind of a, it's hard to kind of tamp down or specify any a clear deficit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we just remind you guys about the abdominal exam as well. Uh, Brandon, I know you mentioned a few minutes ago, checking for a fluid wave. There you go, pal. You got one. Thank you. Okay. So with this exam, what kind of things would you guys be looking for on your labs? What labs do you want? Always good. Always good to get a CBC, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe a... Really thoughtful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Two for two. Yeah. Is it wild for me to want to see if she's spilling protein into her urine? No. Okay. Oh, that's a great, great, great thought. Your analysis. Yeah. Don't forget about the kidneys. There you go. The future nephrologist <laughs> loves it. <laughs> I feel like the kidneys affect the whole body. So mm -hmm. she's definitely got something full body going on here. Let's see. We have the CMP. We're looking at the liver. Your analysis, looking at the kidneys. CBC. Yeah. I mean, might as well see what her platelets are like. She has this history of ITP. What else? Is she this slowed, flattened intonation? Her neuro exam is just confusing me. What would we get to? What would help us lab wise in figuring out what that's about? I don't know. Well, I think that some of the labs you guys mentioned is a great place to start. You know, and I think that that's, you know, a good foundation point. We can see what they show and go from there. So like Nate mentioned, asking you shall receive. So we got the CBC, white count is 6.0, hemoglobin 13.1, platelets 56. On BMP, all within normal limits, hepatic panel shows an ALT of 32, an AST of 62, an ALK-FOS of 150. Her T-bili is 4.2 with a direct hyperbilirubinemia. Her albumin is 2.2, INR 1.7. Additionally, EKG was normal, chest x-rays normal, no evidence of pulmonary edema. So now that we have some prelim labs, you guys got this information. What are your thoughts? You know, we have the neurologic component. We have the edema component that you guys have commented on. 
do you feel like this is a primary neurologic problem? Is it secondary? Is there anything in these labs that jump out at you? How are you thinking about this right now? Can we go through and identify what's abnormal about the labs? Absolutely. So what what jumps out at you for just to start and then we'll and then we'll fill in anything. The platelets are low, Mm -hmm. but I kind of want to know, is that this patient's baseline is or is this something new for them? Because that that could be just where her platelets sit at Mm -hmm. before all this happened. Yeah, because she because she had that Mm -hmm. history. So this might be what it's, you know, might be 56 for a long time. Mm -hmm. Also, the the T Billy being at 4.2 and it's direct, that also stands out to me. Yeah. So clearly, I mean, uh, to answer your question, Kashik, I would, I would say to me, this, this, this might point more to neurologic findings being secondary mm-hmm. to a, a liver related process. Just to synthesize the labs, thrombocytopenia, mildly elevated liver tests, hyperbilirubinemia, hypoalbuminemia, and a coagulopathy with INR. And I think, Ali, you made an awesome point, which is that whenever we see new labs for a patient, one of the most important things to always think about is how it relates to their baseline. Because if this is where a patient normally lives versus them having been at 250 last week and now at 56, that completely changes our picture and the acuity of the situation, right? Yeah, so I think because of that, her platelets and her INR are not as impressive to me right now as they would be if I found out that it was a more acute of a change. Sure. Okay. Absolutely. And I know both of you guys have mentioned, you know, really noticing the hepatic panel mm-hmm. and feel, and Brandon mentioning that this is a neurologic component secondary to something going on in the liver. So I think my first question is if you guys think that this patient is in acute liver failure and why or why not? I don't think so. I think that if I remember correctly from a while ago, there's a pretty formal criteria you have to meet to be an acute liver failure. And I don't think her ALT and AST are, are nearly what I would expect them to be if she was in acute failure. Right. I, I'm not 100% certain about this, but, you know, if, if this patient does have like altered mental status, um, you know, I think that that would meet one of the criteria for acute liver failure. But, you know, as Ali's mentioning with the ALT and AST not being that elevated, I guess I'm just trying to remember if, if a hepatocellular cellular injury pattern is part of that criteria. I think it, I think it is. I think so. From my memory, not necessarily formal, it's within a 26 week time period, acute liver injury, which is probably that pedocellular injury, encephalopathy and coagulopathy. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. And we certainly, you know, seem to have some components of that, right? Mm-hmm. We have the INR of 1.7, you know, that, that is slight, pretty abnormal. You know, we have some mild elevation in the liver enzymes. And, you know, we have this hyperbilirubinemia, you know, tough to really say definitively, you know, like Ali mentioned, you're leaning towards saying no, but something for us to think about, mm-hmm. right? When we're thinking about these patients who could potentially be very, very sick and require really acute treatment. So I think you guys pointed out a lot of really, really great stuff. And so thinking about this patient's picture now, we have a little bit of history. We got the exam and now we have labs. What? kind of next steps do you guys want as far as workup? Anything else that's screaming at you as far as things you want to order, things you want to do? Do you want to look at her liver? Like get a ruckus, right up her quadrant ultrasound? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think at this point, some some sort of imaging would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a urinalysis. 
Oh, yeah. You did that. You Guess did. we're moving away from the kidneys. So it's yeah. not a kidney mission. And in about 10 to 15 years, you can take that up with Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think an ultrasound is it's like a non-invasive good place to start. So Cool. Absolutely. All right. So you get your liver ultrasound with Doppler, and it shows a cirrhotic liver morphology, patent portal flow, and splenomegaly. You also get a few more labs that show a negative ANA, a negative alpha-1 antitrypsin, negative hep A IgM and IgG, negative hep B surface antigen, negative hep B core antibody, negative hep B surface antibody, negative smooth muscle antibody, normal IgA, IgM, IgG, TSH is normal, celiac panel normal, her ceruloplasm was 6, normal range is 18 to 53, and for her iron studies, her iron was 55, transferrin 150, TIBC of 209, ferritin 125, 26% SAT. So some new findings here. What jumps out at you guys? And how do these new findings move things up and down your differential? What is your differential right now? So let's just start. What jumps out at you? I think the the hepatitis panel sort of pushes me away from thinking it's like an infectious etiology. The, the negative ANA as well as the negative smooth muscle antibody makes me think I think the smooth muscle is related to like autoimmune hepatitis, right? So I think that we can maybe rule that out for now. Those things jump out to me initially. Mm-hmm. So she has cirrhotic liver morphology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's definitely a, a liver problem going on. Yeah. Or either primary liver problem or something is affecting the liver in such a way. And splenomegaly. So now we have another organ system uh-huh. coming in here. Okay. Her iron studies, it's been a while. Are these normal? So, we have a, these yeah. are normal transferrin of, okay. So her yeah. Yeah. And then ceruloplasmin is low. Is it with Wilson's that it's high or low? I, for some reason, I, I, I thought that, that it was low with Wilson's, but I'm not hundred percent certain. So if that's what we're going with, then I'd put that pretty high on my differential. Cirrhosis on a 25 year old. What do you make of that? Pretty, pretty uncommon and probably more likely to be a more rare cause. Yeah. Something we haven't talked about, patient's social history. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Certainly develop cirrhosis, alcohol. Right. And say, okay. okay. Good. Gotcha. Would you find like higher ASTs and LS and... Than what she's presenting with? Yeah. Yes. But on a grand scale things, usually they're pretty mild to mildly okay. elevated, like low hundreds. Gotcha. For alcohol, hepatitis C. Yeah. And then the layer panel is really to evaluate for hemochromatosis. Things you're looking at there are mainly the percent sat as the best indicator. I believe above 50% can clue into that versus mm-hmm. in yeah. a normal range. I think to Ali's point with the ceruloplasmin, if we are thinking about Wilson's as a potential diagnosis, we know that can cause liver injury mm-hmm. and we also know that can cause neurologic issues and personality changes, tremor. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'd be thinking about. Can we look at her eyes? <laughs> Kaiser oh, Flesher ring. <laughs> Somebody studied for step one and two. All right. Nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Team effort. Okay. So 10,000 foot view here. Mm-hmm. You guys just had some really awesome thoughts as far as using this information to help funnel in on a differential diagnosis. Based on what I hear you guys saying, it sounds like these labs are leading you towards possibly Wilson's disease as your top differential as of now. Anything else that you guys are still considering, especially with this finding of cirrhosis, you know, being the big 
clue as far as forming a differential. Anything else you guys are still considering and any other workup that you guys might want before we check for Kaiser Fleischer rings? <laughs> what are the other causes of cirrhosis? I think like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And what you have up there says negative. Does that mean it's not detectable? Normal. Normal. Yeah, normal. normal. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Normal. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. She could... I think I may be anchoring on an autoimmune etiology because she's young, but I don't know that many autoimmune diseases to cause a cirrhotic liver morphology, especially with like a negative smooth muscle antibody. I think I would still keep autoimmune on there because I feel like autoimmune diseases are weird ones and they can present very differently across the board. But yeah, I I feel like Wilson's autoimmune. Yeah, those are great Mm. thoughts. And, you know, like Kevin mentioned too, especially in a younger patient and, you know, kind of an abnormal finding, right? 25-year-old cirrhosis, Mm -hmm. alcohol, social history, always something that we want to think about too. So I think that you guys have a great differential moving forward. So how about we give you a little bit more information? Sounds great. So let's go ahead and do an MRI brain that finds symmetrical, abnormal T2 flare, hyperintense signal in the bilateral caudate, putamen, thalami, and brainstem as well as abnormal intrinsic T1 hyperintense signal in the globi pallidi. And then you also do an IR transjugular liver biopsy that shows a free hepatic vein pressure of 17, a wedged hepatic vein pressure of 22, an IVC pressure of 17, and a right atrium pressure of 14. And the biopsy shows pathology of cirrhosis, focal scarring fibrosis, minimal inflammation, PAS, DPAS, and iron negative, And TTE with bubble shows evidence of a right-to-left shunt via saline contrast via rapid transpulmonary flow. Her serum copper is 37. Her urine copper is 133. So, a few more studies right now. A lot of information to go through. So let's just start with the MRI brain. Mm -hmm. You guys have any thoughts? I don't think that's to be there. Yeah, fair. (laughs) Fairly, there's there's an insult in the brain. Yeah, something's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do you guys think of this transjugular liver biopsy? A lot of numbers being thrown at us. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of yeah. unknown numbers, but. Is her right atrial pressure high? The 14 seems high, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about what the pressure of the hepatic vein is supposed to be. Yeah. Should it be higher than the right atrial pressure? Should be higher? Should it be? Probably not. That would be my guess. Pathology shows cirrhosis again. I'm trying to remember what, what the significance of the PAS being alpha antitrypsin. Okay. Why? I'm just wondering that we obviously didn't come up with this next step, but I wonder why the TTE with bubble was ordered. I did yeah. the team think that she was having strokes? That is an excellent question and something that I was wondering as well when yeah. we were putting this case together and going through the steps. So in about Probably 12 and a half seconds. I'll give you the answer <laughs> to that. But I think you guys are pointing out some great stuff, right? Elevated pressures on the transjugular liver biopsy. TTE with bubble that shows a right to left shunt. But we're kind of wondering why that was even done in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And then urine copper 133, serum copper 37. What do you guys make of that? Hi. Hi yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Those seem- yeah. So I think that was the big question, right? Why did we get the TTE with bubble? So as you guys have pointed out, we seem to have some pretty primary liver dysfunction here. So in a lot of these patients with liver dysfunction, 
you get an increase in the hepatic production of endothelin-1. So when you get an increase in that production of endothelin-1, it increases nitric oxide stimulation in the lungs, which increases nitric oxide levels and causes this really profound vasodilation. So when you have this really profound vasodilation in the pulmonary vascular bed, you have way more perfusion than you do ventilation in the lungs. So you have a perfusion ventilation mismatch because of this vasodilation. So when that happens, blood traveling through this pulmonary vascular bed isn't getting oxygenated as effectively as it should be. So this blood is passing through the lungs without being oxygenated due to reduced transit time through these, through these severely dilated vessels. And so because of that, you end up with this pretty profound hypoxia. And when you do a TTE with bubble, you can see a right to left shunt. Because these vessels are so dilated, when you inject saline on the TTE, that saline can travel through the pulmonary vasculature without being stuck in those vessels because they're so dilated. They travel straight through the pulmonary vessels and they can end up in the left side of your heart. And it can show up as a right to left shunt. So it's this really, really interesting pathology of hepatopulmonary syndrome that can happen in a lot of these really sick patients. It can show up as a right to left shunt because your pulmonary vessels are so dilated, the saline can freely travel through it without getting trapped in these small capillaries like it should be, and it can end up in the left side of your heart. Gotcha. That's very interesting. Yeah. So and that's diagnostic for hepatopulmonary? It's, there's criteria. For... But TT with bubbles, one of the tools wow. we use to evaluate for it. Wow. Other things. And Kevin, please jump in and correct me for anything that I just said that was no, yeah, it's totally correct. <laughs> it's the profound capillary vasodilation, really absent tone of the vessels leads to overperfusion and decreased transit time mm -hmm. that causes increased A gradient. And then you're having mixed blood pass through and things clinically you can see are progressive dyspnea. It's usually in the form of latipnea. So worse when you're sitting from going laying down to upright because the distribution of blood vessels. Orthodeoxia is another clinical finding. It's similar. It's a measured difference on SpO2 or PaO2 from moving from super upright. And then any stigma of cirrhosis. And the diagnosis is a trial of established liver disease or portal hypertension and a gradient greater than 15, which is abnormally elevated. And then pulmonary vascular dilation, which is what we confirm with TD with bubble. So for her, she only has two of the three. She's not hypoxemic. Her A gradient was marital, but she does have evidence of pulmonary vascular dilation for disease. And then the other thing that we were wondering was for this transjugular liver biopsy. So I was also wondering how this worked. And so basically, in order to get this biopsy, you send a guide wire through the IVC into the right hepatic vein. And by doing that, it allows you to directly assess hepatic vein pressures and you can perform a liver biopsy like we just did. So in patients with chronic liver disease, we see this increased resistance to sinusoidal blood flow, and this ultimately leads to elevated portal, pressure, portal pressures. So what we do in this transjugular procedure is we position the catheter into the hepatic vein, and that allows us to measure the hepatic venous pressure gradient. So this gradient is the difference between the wedged hepatic pressure and the free hepatic pressure. The wedged hepatic pressure is the pressure within the portal system. The free hepatic pressure 
is reflective of, reflective of systemic venous pressure. And so basically the difference between the portal pressure and systemic venous pressure is our hepatic venous pressure gradient. And if that's elevated, then that can be indicative to us that this patient could have portal hypertension. And so this can actually be a really, really useful study for the diagnosis of portal hypertension. And in some patients, these serial pressure gradient surveillance readings can also be a helpful marker for tracking the progression of liver disease and even as a prognostic indi prognostic indicator too. So it's a really, really interesting procedure that you know, we can sometimes see in these patients that I also learned about. So nice. cool stuff. Man, lots of hepatology learning here. <laughs> so all that to say that you then go back to see your patient based on all these findings, you do in fact do an opto slit lamp exam that is significant for Kaiser Fleischer rings. And you also do ATP7B genetic testing that showed two pathogenic variants. Wow. Nice. What do you guys think it is? Wilson's Sounds disease. like it's Wilson's, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Wow. And that's, and that's really cool. You guys were talking about Wilson's three or four slide vac. Yeah. Yeah. It can sometimes be helpful because, you know, the first thought I had when I saw it being a young patient was this is probably like a more rare disease. And mm -hmm. those are the ones that we learn about in med school, but don't see as often, I guess, when we're treating patients in real life. Mm -hmm. But obviously still important to learn and remember as well because they happen. Right. I feel like that's a really awesome point that you guys just brought up because, you know, these kind of gestalt rules that we try and go by just for the sake of our learning can be really helpful. But then when we're presented with a real patient who may be very sick and very ill, I feel like this just stresses the importance to us, especially as learners, to always keep a really broad differential, no matter who you're seeing, because this was a really ill patient who needed care now. And if we honed in or anchored on something too quickly because of a certain demographic or something of that nature, that would have really hurt care. And so I feel like that's a really good point that you guys just brought up. So you guys got it. Wilton's disease. And so the resolution, this patient was started on triantine 750 milligrams BID, zinc 200, zinc 220, 50 milligrams TID, was also started on Bumax 3 milligrams BID and spironolactone 200 milligrams daily. She underwent evaluation for liver transplant and ultimately, because of your phenomenal workup and <laughs> diagnostic skills, <laughs> received a transplant four months later after presentation. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, keen thinking, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for walking us through it. Of course. So just a couple quick points and then, you know, I think that ought to do it. So basically, just a broad 10,000 foot view on Wilson's disease since we spent the last 35 minutes circling around it. Basically in Wilson's disease, it's an autosomal recessive condition caused by a mutation in the ATP7B gene. And so this ATP7B er, encodes a, cropper, a copper transporting ATPase. And so generally in our bodies, we absorb copper through the duodenum. That copper is taken up into hepatocytes. And then this ATP7B ATPase helps associate that copper with apocerulloplasmin to form ceruloplasmin, which is the form that is able to transport copper through the blood. So basically in this condition, without this ATP7B ATPase, that copper isn't able to be transported through the blood with ceruloplasmin because it can't be associated with ceruloplasmin inside the hepatocytes. Because of that, the, this copper builds up to really, really toxic levels in these hepatocytes. The ceruloplasmin levels 
And this copper buildup also produces free radicals that causes hepatocyte destruction, leakage of free copper into the bloodstream, and ultimately this really severe liver cirrhosis. And so with this free copper being spilled into the bloodstream, that's where we see a lot of these really widespread systemic manifestations of this disease in so many different organ systems. We saw in this patient the neurologic manifestations, of course, the severe liver cirrhosis. There can also be renal manifestations. And like Ali mentioned, the Kaiser Fleischer rings. It's interesting because this free copper in the blood particularly likes to deposit in this membrane called Decimet's membrane in the cornea. And that's what leads to this typical classic finding of Kaiser Fleischer rings in the cornea. So basically, it's a really serious, really severe condition based on this genetic pathophysiology that you guys did really, really well. Thanks, Kaushik. Hey, appreciate it. <laughs> what is the like long-term prognosis for this patient after her liver transplant and being on these medications? Are these medications she has to be on for the rest of her life? And is she is her swelling going to go down when her liver is transplanted? Her swelling went down. It's good. Prognosis. Wilson's is thought to be cured after liver transplant. However, if neurological image occurs prior to transplant, that's irreversible, which is the case for her. From a liver perspective, she's doing much better. I have another question. What do you think is like the most common presentation of Wilson's? Are mo do most people present with neurologic injury already? Yeah, it's tough. I think with her, maybe this could have been picked up sooner. She like carried this diagnosis of volume overload for no, I don't even know what workup was done to be honest, which could have maybe clued into some liver dysfunction earlier. Potentially could have been caught, worked up for Wilson, started on copper binding therapies before neurological damage occurred. Just thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Solid work team. Thanks. Great job. <laughs> this was awesome. fun. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.